I am not an especially fancy person. I buy most of my clothes um, on the thrift store racks or uh, like I bought my pants from Walmart. So for me to have any kind of cologne at all is a little out of character because um, I, don't, I don't know what to do with things that smell, in particular because most of my life I couldn't. But I was with a friend and our mentor in Manhattan several years ago, and he says to me, um, David, you know, do you wear cologne? No. And he says, well, what, what do you use to smell nice? Soap, because <laughs> I'm a man. That's what men do. And he said, well, I think maybe, maybe you would uh, enjoy one of the finer things in life. Would you let me take you to buy cologne? And he said, I think Tom Ford makes the most masculine sense. So let's go to the Tom Ford store. And I'd never bought cologne before. I don't really know anything about cologne. Uh, I remember going to the store feeling really stupid. Like, uh, like what do you, how do you try cologne? Do you lick it? Is it because it come in, like, does it come in pill form? I don't know. And so he says, well, here's all. You, you go ahead. You pick whatever cologne you want. And uh, it's, of course, it's very expensive. So I picked tobacco oud. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the, the eau de parfum. Um, and, and they bought this cologne. So, so this is what I have. This is the, the cologne I have. I, I like the way it smells. Um, and and it's, really, it's really special to me. Um, not because it's cologne that I will never, ever buy again, but because it's a gift, like a really extravagant gift connected with a strong memory of, of a time when somebody loved me and just wanted to spoil me. I mean, that was it. There's no agenda. It was just that somebody believed in me and wanted to say, I love you, um, and, and bought something really expensive. And so I, I brought it out today because I'm going to pass it around. Um, and you can lick it or spritz it on your wrist. I mean, really, whatever works best for you. Um, and of course, it'll take some time to work all the way through the auditorium, you know. But uh, I, I, wanted you to, I wanted you to have something fragrant this morning. Because uh, we're going to talk about one of the most tender stories in the life of Jesus um, when Mary anoints uh, his body with perfume. So, Paul, we'll start with you. Um, I just remember, if you steal my cologne, God will kill you. <laughs> That's not true, but every now and then I like to pretend. Um, so here's the story. It's told in all four Gospels. This is the account from John chapter 12. Uh, they all have slightly different details, but the story is basically the same. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, already we've got, we've got quite the makings of a story going on. I mean, six days before Passover, this, this is when Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for his final showdown against all the forces of power and control. This is when he's going to tackle evil right on the chin, supernatural evil, political evil, social evil, religious evil. This is Jesus picking the fight of his life, the climax of Christ's life on earth. And on the way, he stops in Bethany, a really important town to Jesus, and he stops at the home of his best friends, three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we know something about each of them, and they're quite significant. Lazarus, we know, had died. The shortest verse in the Bible is what? Anybody? Jesus wept. And Jesus wept because his buddy Lazarus died. So Jesus went to go see him after he died. Three days later... Jesus prays for him, speaks to the body. Lazarus comes back from the dead. The disciples unwrap him. And it's incontrovertible proof that Jesus has supernatural authority to work miracles. So much so that Jesus' detractors and critics then hatch a plot in one of the world's greatest ironies to then murder Lazarus a second time, which is ridiculous. Like, you just think, like, what are they going to do? Kill him? And Jesus brings him back. They kill him. Jesus brings him back. I mean, it's like, like a boomerang, you know. It's so awful. So there's Lazarus, and in the home with Lazarus are Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. And we know something about them, too. 
Now, now there are four different Marys in the Gospels. This is Mary of Bethany, so, so not Mary the mother of Jesus, not Mary wife of Clopas, not, not Mary Magdalene. This is just Mary and Martha Mary. Okay? And we know that the first time we read about Jesus going to their house, Martha was busy doing all the normal like domestic things. She was cooking and cleaning and getting ready to have company. But Mary was not doing any of those. Instead, she did what? Anybody? Right, she sat at his feet. Now, do you know what that means? See, see if, if then, if, if you were a rabbi or a teacher, you would usually be elevated. You'd sit on a stool, you'd sit on a high chair, maybe leaning against a table, whatever, and you would hold forth. And the people who sat at your feet were, were what? Your students. Your students. Now, it was unheard of for there to be a female rabbinical student. Right? She wasn't just listening, she was learning. She was being trained. So Jesus is crossing all kinds of, of gender and social boundaries. He's elevating Mary in particular and women in general to the position of equal with men. I mean, just this is radical gender reform in the ministry of Jesus. So if you ever wonder, what does the Bible think about women? The Bible thinks very highly of women. And so do we. So Jesus is there. Martha is cleaning in the kitchen. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. And how do you think that feels to Martha? Pretty crummy, right? What, I got to sit in here and do all this stuff while you go out there and pretend to be one of the boys? You can knock it off. So now we see them here in John's Gospel, chapter 12. And all three of them are up to their old tricks once again. Here's Lazarus, not dead. There's Martha cleaning. And guess what Mary's doing? They gave a dinner for Jesus at their home. Martha served, of course. Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Thus the house was filled with the fragrance of Tom Ford tobacco oud. <laughs> now, there's a couple of things going on here that, that just make this all really peculiar. I mean, for, first and foremost, if today somebody came over to your house and, and all of a sudden your sister was sitting at their feet, wiping up their feet with her hair, that, that'd be weird, right? It was no less weird then. In fact, it was increasingly weird then because there would have been an, a, at least an aspect to it of sexual impropriety. See, men didn't see women with their hair let down. So when we read that, that Mary's got her hair down in the presence of Jesus, it's not like she just came out of the shower and is got, you know, wrapped up in a towel. I mean, she's not going, oh my gosh, I'm such a mess, mess. hashtag mom life, you know, where's my um, essential oils? I mean, that's not the right picture. Instead, she, she's, she's so vulnerable. She, she's so close. And it would have been so uncomfortable for everyone there to, to see her do this. And you can imagine what their reactions were like. You know, I mean, here's Martha going, oh, God, not again. Are you serious? You know, and you can imagine Lazarus, you know, reclining at the table, seeing his sister do this, and him just going, oh, kill me, kill me now. I know it won't last, but somebody take my life. This is awful. <laughs> again and again and again, they, these, these characters, Jesus' closest friends outside of the disciples, perhaps even closer than the disciples, these, these characters come to life, and we realize that Jesus had these strong loving interactions with them. And that's what colors all of it is, is love. These people loved him, and he loved them in return. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, the one actually who was going to betray Jesus, said, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because Judas was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put inside it. So Jesus replied, Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep the perfume for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, when we read this story, I think the, the feeling that we're supposed to come away with, I mean, the, if you imagine it as a, as a film playing out in your mind, an episode of television, a piece of theater, the, the feeling that you have is this, this uncomfortable proximity where Mary is so wholly devoted to Jesus. She doesn't care about what people think. She doesn't care what about everybody else is doing. She doesn't care that she's falling into these things that she's been criticized about before. All she wants to do is be with Jesus and demonstrate that she loves him. And she does it in this radical, absurd fashion because that's what love is. Love is extravagant. And we, we know this. We know that there's an extravagant religious love. We know there's an extravagant family love. You know, you, you have r r extravagant, like, brotherly love. You know, when people start becoming really close and, and BFFs start, you know, happening, they, they give each other little nicknames, you know? And, you know, of course, when romantic love is fresh, that's, that's what we want to do. We make these extravagant, grand gestures to sort of perform and prove and, and, and display the love that we have for another person. That's what Mary's doing here. She's totally caught up in the feeling. And when love is extravagant, when love is pure like that, when love is effervescent like that, effusive like that, there's always going to be people who criticize it. So here comes Judas and says, what are you doing? Dry up. Do you know how much money that is? What are you, like, what, I'm not going to, we could give that money to the poor. Not because he cared about the poor. There'll be times in your life where you feel caught up in extravagance, where you want to just, just pour forth, where you just want to let everything go, where you want to give yourself wholly to God, wholly to other people, and there's always going to be somebody there who goes, oh, come on. Knock it off. What are you doing? There'll be times where you really care about something, maybe something at your church, maybe something in the community, it's a time where you want, to, where you want to spend a lot of money in something that matters to you, and somebody else is going to say, really, couldn't you do something better with that money? Why can't you give that money to the poor? You know, those people never care about the poor. It drives me crazy. N nobody should have the right to criticize you for where you give your money. It's a beautiful thing that you're giving. You might give to missionaries. You might, you might give to children's sponsorship programs. You might sponsor kids overseas. You might give to your church. You might, you might give anywhere. And there's always going to be somebody who says, well, you should be doing this other thing instead. And honestly, those people should shut up. They won't. <laughs> we just have to turn the volume down on them in our own lives. And you know, there was a funny thing that happened, you know, not that long ago. Huge fire in Paris at the Notre Dame Cathedral. And uh, I've been to Notre Dame many times. Uh, uh, it was a surprisingly spiritual experience for me. Um, at a time in my life where I had mostly criticisms of and for the Catholic Church, going to perhaps the most famous Catholic Church on the planet, um, I, was, I was caught up in a sense of God's presence. It was really, really meaningful to me. Carmel and I went. I went again a couple times by myself. It was just it's amazing. And so when, when, the, when the church burned, immediately they began a, 
a campaign for people to donate to the reconstruction of Notre Dame. And very, very quickly, I mean, there was millions and millions of dollars, I think over a billion dollars almost, you know, in a matter of months. And, and I, you know, I didn't give, but it, it, honestly, there were too many buttons to click. I thought, well, I'll go back, and, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll give them a hug, that'll be the same, you know. But what, what surprised me was the, the backlash against the donors from the community of people on the internet who said again and again and again, that's money that you could give to the poor. And I thought, no, you can still give money to the poor. Also, if you're gonna complain on the internet, why don't you just give money to the poor and shut up, help them, shut up for me, that's better. But the, the truth is that like, money for one thing doesn't always come from the same place as money for something else. Giving to Notre Dame doesn't mean you didn't give to the poor. It just gives somebody grouchy something to say. Like if you take me out for lunch and you pick up the check, I think that, that's so sweet, that's so beautiful. That's not the same thing as if you and I walk around downtown and somebody's panhandling asking you for money and in that moment you feel led by God's spirit to give them something. That money comes from different places. Still your money, it just goes out in different ways. They're not the same. If somebody's going on a missions trip and you want to sponsor them, that, that comes from a different part of your heart than, than if you're going to give to a, a building fund or just the regular normal giving that you do weekly as a Christian. It just, it just comes from a different spot. Buying me lunch doesn't mean you're not going to give to Jesus. It just means you're also going to give to something else. So when people get cranky and critical, and, you know, it's just me. It's just small. It's just small, and it's not because they care about the poor. The truth is, extravagance oh, it frustrates people. It exposes them. It embarrasses them. Sometimes because they go, that, all that emotion, I don't know what to do with it. But more often, it, it convicts them because they realize that the character and the quality of their own love is something far more petty. And in the face of real love, extravagant love, like... like super love, that small love can only snipe. That's all it can do. That's all it can do. And so when those people come for you, when they, when they talk about you, when they, they take their shots at you, you know, honestly, you know what you should do is, is, is just ignore them. Just ignore them. I said that at the 830 service, and, and my friend came up to me, and he says, don't you think we should pray for them? Um, and I said yes, but I really meant no. No, I don't want to. I don't want to pray for him. That's that's too much. You pray for him. <laughs> no. Because what we want is for love to flow out of us in unmitigated passion and enthusiasm. And that's why worship is so powerful, right? I mean, you come to church sometimes. Right? And, and not to, you know, be weird, or, or I don't mean this as a criticism of anybody, but you know, there's some days you come to church and you're, you're just kind of chilling, you're, you're drinking your coffee, you know, you're whatever. But there's other days where you, you're just feeling it, man. You, you put your coffee cup down, your arms go up, you, you sing with a loud voice trying to match Kevin's intensity and enthusiasm because you realize that there's something here that demands, that requires extravagance, a, a passionate response. And when you worship like that, man, it changes you. Because real love is extravagant, even when it's criticized. And it wasn't just extravagant, of course. I mean, there was a, there was a strange humility to Mary's actions, right? Like, like Jesus says she's anointing his body for burial, right? 
But if you were going to anoint a body for burial, where would you normally dump the perfume? Yeah, on your head, on top of your head. What's so sweet is that, you know, when Leanne said top of her head, well, um, the person sitting in front of her yawned, so it looked like you were saying you should anoint in the mouth. You know, it's not true. <laughs> no, you, you would normally pour the perfume on the top of somebody's head, and it would run down. The Psalms talk about it a lot. The, the oil of anointing running through your beard, glistening in your hair, all the, all the rest of it. But Mary, no, no, she, she stoops, right? She lowers herself. She gets on the floor and anoints Jesus' feet. Very peculiar. Now, typically we think, you know, feet are a bit dirty and a bit gross. Of course, then they absolutely were. You know, you're walking around in sandals and mud streets surrounded by farm animals all the time. Yeah, your feet are going to be gross. But probably somebody would have already washed them. So it's not, it's not the, the relative grossness of Jesus' feet that's so peculiar. It's the tenderness. It's the tenderness that she just... Like she's elevating Jesus and lowering herself. She's, she's serving Jesus. See, that's what love does. When, when we love somebody, we want to serve them. We want to elevate them. We want to put ourselves in it. We su submit to them. We, we, we platform for them because, because we're in love. That's why we serve at church, Right? I mean, you don't serve at church because you're dying to get to use an industrial coffee maker. That's sad. No, you make coffee at church because you love God. You love the people, the community of God. You, you want to serve. That, that's why we, we play the music here. That's why we have ushers and security people out here. That, that's why we have all the people in the kids' classrooms is because we go, this is what it means to be part of the family of God and, and to love each other, to serve each other. And, you know, there's a, a way to serve that, that sort of robs it of all its love and heart. You know, sometimes people get, they just get exhausted by their church chores, you know. They just, they sort of start treating it like it's something they're doing to help out. I mean, don't help out. I mean, yeah, you know, churches need help, and we need help, and we appreciate it. But, like, if you want to grow, if you want to experience the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit, don't you help out. Come on, don't, don't cheapen it like that. When you understand that, that standing at the, the check-in counter for the nursery is how you love people and welcome them into the family of God, now you're serving. I mean, when you understand that, that playing the drums is how you, you shake things up emotionally for people, how you, you, you demonstrate passion and enthusiasm like Rex was doing this morning, when you realize that, that it's, not, it's not just music, there's something, there's something spiritual that happens when we worship God, and when you understand that you've you got a part to play, now, now, now you're serving. You know, you're, you're not flipping camera switches and twisting knobs. No, you're, you're bringing the gospel to people all over the world. You're not just passing out flyers at the check-in counter. You're, you're resourcing the body of Christ. You see, when you, when you understand that, now, now you're serving. Now your heart's back in it. Now it's love. And, and the responsibility is on, is on me, it's on you, to make sure that we're not just going through the motions, but we've got to put our heart in it. We put our heart in it. Like Mary was doing here. So it's extravagant. It's, it's humble, and last but not least, the... Mary's love, the demonstration of her love here, I think it's strangely unselfconscious. 
Like, remember, Mary is a, a female learner, a student of Jesus. So she's not dumb. She, she's not a bimbo. She's not an idiot. She doesn't, I mean, she's not ignorant or unaware of what's going on. I mean, she's smart. And she knows that her actions are bewildering, confusing, socially improper. She knows, which means she also knows she's going to get criticized. She also knows that people are going to raise eyebrows. She knows they're going to talk about her. And she does it anyway. How many of us have been so afraid of what people will say that we've done nothing? Because in our minds, there's this little voice that says, you can't, you're not good enough, people will talk, they know, they know about you, so stay small, take no risks, hide, run off, be in the corner, just keep your head down. But that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit, that's not God's voice. God's voice isn't telling you to cower, to hide off in a corner, don't do anything a little outlandish. No! It's God speaking to you, telling you to step out in faith, to be bold, to risk, to let your love speak loudly. And it's upon you and I, the responsibility is placed upon you and I to tell the little voices in our head to shut up. Like Mary did. Because she knows she has limited time with Christ. And she doesn't want there to be ever one moment where he doesn't feel loved by her. What a cool mandate for you and me. I think I wonder how I can radically, demonstrably show Jesus today where my heart is, where my priorities are, where my loves are. It's funny because, you know, a lot of times we study this and, and we, we really get hung up on Jesus saying, you know, the poor you'll have all we have with you, but I won't be with you forever and ever. You know, it really sort of seems like the passage is about money. But like all of the passages that concern Jesus and money, somehow the money part really gets lost. And the focus is really on our hearts. Because I think Jesus is teaching us again and again and again what money really is. Like money is my time. It's, it's what I've been doing. It's my work. It's what I earn. It's what I've sacrificed for. It's the choices I've made. It's not, it's not a piece of paper. It's not a little coin. It's, it's a proof of what I've been up to. And when I give you money, what I'm saying is I'm willing to sacrifice all of this because I believe in you. I believe in you. And, and if you ever wonder what you're worth to me, well, you're worth my sacrifices. You're worth my time. You're worth my investment. You're worth my choices. You're worth the, the sum of all of my previous experiences. You're worth my savings. You're worth the money I've set aside for something else. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm giving it to you because I love you. So when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's saying, look at when you, when you give what you've earned, You're giving part of yourself. And thus a dollar is transformed into an offering. The contribution is radically sacramentalized into an act of worship. A cup of coffee is a demonstration of love and friendship because we're not giving a thing. 
We're giving of ourselves. And that at the root is what all of the Christian life is. How do I give of myself to God and to others? Because what God gives to me, he gives through me. How, when I cooperate with God, how can I, how can I give something to you? How can I bless you? How can I love you even more? Now today, we're going to invite you in just a moment to come to the front of the church and receive communion. There's always a risk when we do something like this week after week of it becoming meaningless, of you keeping your heart out of it. Don't. Take a moment and put your heart into it. Remind yourself that what we do together actually changes us and shapes us and forms us into different people. And that's, I think, what I like, but just the whole visual of it, the sensational aspect of communion. You receive it into your body. It's like God is planting a seed inside of you growing up until our lives are replaced with his. So it's my challenge to you. Based on the story of Mary, she loved extravagantly. That's what you and I want to do, too. And as you receive the emblems of Christ's body and life, pray that God would fill you with the courage and the boldness to love extravagantly too. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be changed and transformed by your spirit into your image. Help us. Help us to look more like you, to act more like you, to to engage others more like you, to have our lives hallmarked by the same kind of love that you had. Help us to get over how we might look or how we might feel and just to focus on on what your word